looking forward to getting back into the completion of the series on the mystery of human suffering. And we're going to be taking that subject up again. We had reached the point in the series where we're ready to go into the matter of how our suffering here in this life affects our rewards in the world to come. But since it's been a period of time that since we were diverted from our study on human suffering, I'm going to devote the messages today and next week to give a review of the material that we have covered thus far. And then, the Lord willing, we will proceed on with the final segment of how our suffering as Christians will affect our rewards in heaven or the eternal state. You have before you in your bulletin, you should have a map, if you want to call it that. It's actually a puzzle that we have had up here on the board in Sunday's past. But you should have a copy of that. If you do not, you will need one. So if you don't have, raise your hand and the ushers will get one to you. Anybody? Everybody have a copy. Turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This will be what I'm including as the tenth message in the series on suffering, and we're just entitling it a review of human suffering. Reading from 1 Peter 3, verse 14. But if in you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or lifestyle in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. In our study on human suffering, we have sought to understand the meaning as given in the Bible by using the analogy of putting together the pieces of a puzzle. That is, taking all the pieces of biblical data and putting them together and seeing how they fit into the puzzle, which will unfold the mystery of why we suffer. Now, in doing so, we have purpose to stay within the framework of the data given in the Scriptures, related to the character and the providence of God. And we began by locating all the pieces that have a straight edge, because they will make up the outside framework from which all the other individual pieces will fit. That's what you have before you, if you'll notice, on the outside edges of the puzzle, there are four different titles given there. We're calling that the framework. And then we have been covering the individual causes of suffering within that framework. Why is this subject important? It's important because due to the fact 
of the existence of suffering and evil in this world, this has been the main tool that has been used by skeptics and atheists against the idea of the existence of God. The immediate context here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that of Christian suffering. The theme in Peter's letter is victory over suffering. And the key word in the epistle is suffer. And Peter tells us that it is part of our Christian witness and duty to be able to both understand and explain to others the role of suffering as God's will in our lives. In other words, this is not an option. This is the duty that is given to us that we are to study, to understand what human suffering is about, and to grasp the meaning of it to such an extent that we can explain it to others. The group of words for suffering in the Greek New Testament is not used to primarily describe bodily pain. Now, I'm in bodily pain at this very moment. I am all the time, but particularly this morning. But that's not what we're talking about primarily when we're dealing with suffering. It's included, but it's not the primary meaning. But these words describe oppression from some source of affliction. And we defined suffering as being this. Listen carefully. Suffering is the soul's response to experiencing affliction and evil. So when the Bible primarily talks about suffering, it's talking about the afflictions that we experience when we're exposed to adverse happenings in and around us. We began the series by seeking to determine the origin of suffering. Where did it all come from? We found that the answer is clearly given to us in the first book of the Bible called Genesis, which means beginning or origin. After creating man as male and female, God placed him in a garden, a paradise, free of pain and suffering. And God promised them that this state of existence would continue as long as they obeyed His will and acknowledged His authority. And if they disobeyed, they would expose themselves to the cursing penalty of suffering ending in death. And this act of disobedience would become known as sin. The origin of sin first broke out in the angelic creation as Lucifer or Satan and a host of angels became jealous over God's purpose for this creature, man. And in an act of rebellion, Lucifer sought to destroy man and God's purpose for man. He felt that if he could frustrate God's plan to elevate man to a place of dominion over the created order, then it would prove that God was not the omnipotent creator 
but a mere finite being like other beings. And thus God would be dethroned as the supreme sovereign ruler of the universe and God's authority would become useless. This plan was implemented, I believe, in the Garden of Eden, wherein both Eve and Adam were tempted to disobey God and they succumbed to the temptation. Now, as a result of Satan and Adam's disobedience, God then placed a curse upon the entire created order of fallen angels and men. And this curse extended to the lower creation as well. So that, in Romans 8.22, we read that the whole creation groans and travails together until now. The entire created order of God is under the curse of God because of angelic and human sin. So in summary, then, we can say that the Bible explains that the source of all suffering flows out of the curse which God has placed on His creation, which fallen angels and men have brought upon themselves by their desire to become gods and remove God from His throne of glory. God will not be mocked. He will not share His glory with a creature. This understanding we called the creature's sin. And if you will look on your puzzle makeup there, this is the first side of the frame of the puzzle. Now, my hearers, if a person is going to understand the mystery of human suffering, you cannot ignore this first piece in the puzzle as to where suffering originated. If you try to explain suffering apart from the curse that fell upon humanity, you'll never get the job done in a satisfactory manner. Then we moved into the issue of the problem of suffering. This is, was in our second message. The problem of suffering as it relates to the character of God. The Bible claims that God exists, that He is holy, that He's good, that He's loving, that He's kind, that He's merciful, and that He's just. That He is moral in that He loves righteousness and hates evil. Furthermore, the Bible reveals that He is all-powerful, meaning He is able to do whatever He wills to do. The Bible declares He is all-wise in that He knows all things and all potential things. And thus, He is able to eliminate evil and suffering because one day there will be no more evil and suffering in a new heaven and a new earth. Yet, despite of who He is and His capabilities, 
There is evil and suffering existing in the world which He has created. And this presents a problem in that it appears to be a contradiction. How can God be who He says He is and that which is opposed to His being exists? Human philosophy, along with Christian theology, has tried to deal with the difficulty of the problem. We looked at non-Christian proposed solutions to the problem, and they are seen first in the teachings of atheism. Atheism attacks this problem by removing God from the picture. Just that simple, there is no God. Therefore, there's no tension between the existence of God and human suffering. We looked at the belief system known as deism, which while it affirms the existence and the personality of God, it denies that God operates within His creation in a personal manner. Therefore, what's going on in His creation He has set laws in place and He no longer intervenes in those laws. Therefore, He is outside of the created order. He's not working in it. Therefore, there's no problem. We just are left to explain why suffering exists. We looked at the doctrine of pantheism, which denies that God is personal and affirms that there's no distinction between the Creator and the creature. We are our own gods and responsible for the existence of suffering. This is the doctrine that has been wedded in to what has become known as the New Age movement. And Oprah Winfrey is one of the leading advocates of this position, is that we are our own God and we make and break what goes on in our lives. We control that. We also looked at the non-Christian solution to this problem in the theory known as dualism, which affirms that there are two moral principles operating in the universe. Number one, a principle of evil, and number two, a principle of good. Sometimes these two principles are personalized as God and the devil. Each is powerful, but neither is absolute or all-powerful. God is responsible for all of the good, and the devil is responsible for all of the evil. This is the dualistic approach to try to solve the existence of God and the existence of evil. We found that none of these non-Christian views solved the problem of suffering. Then we examined what we called sub-Christian or sub-biblical solutions to the problem. I refer to these in this manner because these views are found among professing Christians who do not use all of the biblical data in forming their positions. They know some of what the Bible says, but they don't know all of it. 
Some Christians are ignorant of the biblical data, while other Christians are arrogant in selecting some biblical references while rejecting others, resulting in their conclusions becoming flawed. Did you follow me on that? This is the reason why we have so many different understandings of Scripture, is that some Christians have reached conclusions upon issues, but they have not been exposed to all the biblical teachings on it. They're just unaware. And thus their reasonings and understandings will be flawed or warped. Some Christians deliberately choose a certain selection of texts and reject others. We call them arrogant. For who has the right to pick and choose that which is found in God's Word? So when these two bodies of individuals do this, they obviously come up with flawed conclusions, and particularly as it relates to the doctrine of human suffering. The first sub-Christian view we examined denies the goodness of God. Now, I would not in reality even refer to this as a sub-Christian view in that I don't believe it's Christian at all, but this group likes to call themselves Christian. And this group which denies the goodness of the God of the Bible is known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism believes that all physical matter is evil. And that the God who is referred to in the opening verse in Genesis, who created matter, is an evil God. But there is a supreme God beyond the God of the Bible, who is comprised of eternal spirit and good. And thus, suffering and evil is traceable to the God of the Bible who created matter. And thus, this position denies the goodness of God. The second sub-Christian view is the position that takes the, the understanding that God's power is limited so that He cannot prevent suffering. This is held by those who embrace what is known as Arminian theology, who assert that in order for man to possess free will, God had to impose self-limitations upon Himself. Follow me? That is, in order for man to have free choices, God had to withhold His power. And so He's put limitations on Himself. And thus, while God knows the future actions of men, and He knows the suffering which will follow, He chooses not to restrain the evil in order to preserve the creature's free moral agency. Thus, God knew what Adam was going to do. He knew what would be the consequences, but it is believed by Arminian theology in order for Adam to possess what they call free will, God then could not restrain or prevent Adam from acting the way he knew he was going to act. 
The third sub-Christian view maintains that God's wisdom or His knowledge is limited. In this view, this is, I believe, Arminian theology working out to its logical conclusion. It is known as open or process theism. This position believes that nothing can be known in advance unless it is certain to occur. It asserts that God has given His moral creatures such awesome freedom that even He, God, cannot know in advance what a creature is going to do. It maintains that since God has given His creatures the ability to make opposite choices between two or more options, it is logically impossible for God to know what the free choices of His moral creatures are going to be. And this, Brother Dana, being the case, then even God does not know how His world is going to work itself out. God is learning in the process of what is occurring the same way we finite creatures are learning. Okay? This is supposed to answer the tension between God's existence and the suffering of humanity. You see why I call it sub-Christian and sub-biblical? Because it cannot be placed into harmony with the revelation that is given to us of the God in the Bible. The fourth sub-biblical view or sub-Christian view asserts that the reality of suffering is limited. This is the view of the Christian science approach. It simply denies that suffering exists. Suffering is but an illusion of the mind. Thus, today, Brother Clint, I'm not really suffering in bodily pain but it's all in my mind, and if I could somehow get mind over matter, I wouldn't be prob have a problem with this suffering. I tell you, that takes a big imagination. A big imagination. If suffering is just an illusion of the mind, then wouldn't I be today suffering from an illusion? Hmm? Christian science is neither Christian nor science. It's like grape nuts. There's not any grapes in there and there's not any nuts in there. That is the best description I've ever come across of Christian science. It simply denies that there is such a thing of a reality of suffering. The bottom line is that none of these solutions solve the problem of suffering existing in the world of the God which is revealed in the Bible. 
If we embrace any of these non-Christian solutions or these sub-Christian solutions, we will end up with a God who is less than the God revealed in the Bible. And that's what we're dealing with today. In order for men to try to explain human suffering, we have conjured up a God that doesn't exist. In light of God's character as revealed in Scripture, we must, though, say that while God hates sin, suffering, and death for what it has done to His creative design, He is nevertheless in control of all the sin, suffering, and death which exist and will bring redemptive justice, and mercy out of it all. This is the second side of our frame which we have labeled the character of God. If you'll look on your sheet before you, you'll see that at the top of the sheet. So we've examined the creature's sin, the character of God. If either of these pieces is left out of your understanding of human suffering, you won't get the rest of the pieces to fit in the puzzle. They'll jam up somewhere. In the third message, we looked at the path of human suffering flowing out of the Garden of Eden down to the present time. We saw God's threat come true. Adam and Eve have two children named Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother Abel, and death enters into the race of mankind. Then in the following chapters 4 and 5, we have the genealogies of the early patriarchs. And we read of each one, so-and-so lived 930 years, and he what? And he died, and he died, and he died. And he died. And that's been going on ever since then. And will go on until the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who will then at that time conquer the last enemy, which is death. And death is conquered in the resurrection. So there will be no more suffering and no more death after the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we shall meet Him in the air as God's people. This path of human suffering and death is a display of God's wrath upon sin. And we should view it in a way that we could understand the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. Oh, that we could see sin as God sees sin. Hmm? I can't see that. Or else I wouldn't enjoy some of the sin that I commit. It is said that Moses was willing to identify and suffer with the people of Israel than to enjoy the what? Pleasures of sin for a season. Sin brings pleasure. But it doesn't bring pleasure to God because He sees sin in a different light than any of His sinful creatures see it. And there's not a person that I'm speaking to, including the person who is speaking today, who has a full sensation and understanding of the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. 
But until this is understood or comprehended in varying degrees, we will then never agree with the holy justice of God in the punishment of sin, and we will continue to believe that we should not have had this happen to us. We will see ourselves as victims of God's providence rather than of individuals who deserve far more than what we're getting. Now that concept has disappeared almost entirely from today's Christianity. That's not what you go to church to hear. Today's Christianity measures on feel good, pat on the back. And this type of message will not preach to full churches. We also learned in the third message how to distinguish between the evil of sin created by the creature and the evil of sin's consequences created by God. The creature is the sinner, not God. But God brings consequences created upon the sinning creature. And we must learn that when the Bible uses the word evil to distinguish between the evil of sin and the evil of consequences. When God placed His curse upon the moral creatures as recorded in Genesis 3, He then exposed them to the stresses which would come about because of their desire for sinning. Here would be these consequences, the evils which God would allow His creation to to suffer as a result of sinning. The first curse fell upon Satan, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. He was demoted from the highest rank in the angelic creation, having dominion over all, only subject unto God. He was demoted from that rank to the lowest level of the animal creation. He would go like a serpent and eat dust, that is, humiliated. And he would become frustrated in his desires. He would be permitted to afflict the human race, but would ultimately be forced to submit to the physical race of Adam. Satan today has to go to a human being on the throne of God. Jesus Christ Himself in His humanity. And to ask permission, Brother Dana, before He can even enter into the body of a pig. How humiliating He who could rule over all of the animals and over all of the galaxies now must go to a creature of Adam's race, the humanity of Jesus, and submit to His authority. Satan thus hates God, and he hates humanity, Brother Asa, made in God's image. That's why he hates you. That's why he hates me. Because he sees in us God, and he cannot stand that image. Satan has the ability to oppress and possess members of the human race. Possess unbelievers and oppress believers. 
This we call demonic stress. And my hearers today, whether you recognize it or not, every one of us is exposed to unseen stress that is pressed upon us by the angelic race that has fallen under their head, Satan. And there will be things happening to you in your human life which cannot be traceable to any logical explanation in the physical realm, but that there is something supernatural going on behind the scenes. Next, the curse falls upon the woman, Genesis 3.16. She will experience sorrow in bearing her children by observing their sin and the consequences which their sin brings upon them. It's a wonderful thing to have children. You who have raised children, does it not grieve you when you observe how they sin and you see what their sin has got them into? Eve, in sorrow now, you're going to bring forth children. And you're going to have to watch the consequences of your sin work itself out in the lives of your offspring. Also, Eve will experience stress in the marriage relationship with her husband. She will seek in sin to dominate him as the head, and he in sin will seek to maintain his position and abuse her in return. And thus, Here is the origin of the battle of the sexes. Stress in the marriage relationship. Stress in the parent-child relationship. This curse will overflow into all areas of human relationships. We call this social stress. So that Adam's offspring is going to be exposed to demonic stress and stress of having to relate to other human beings. It's one of the most difficult things I find in, in living in life is being able to maintain good relationships with other people. I've said it several times here before. I'll say it again because I don't have a better illustration <laughs> to give. Uh, The bumper sticker says, the longer I'm around people, the more I love my dog. Human relationships are difficult because we're all devils. We're all seeking to be the supreme authority and we want God and others to submit to our plans. And everything must work out the way that we want it to be done. The problem is everybody else is in the same boat. And thus you have bumper cars. Any of you that grew up, you remember those old carnivals you used to go to where you'd have the bumper cars and they drive around and bump into each other? That's what life is going to be like, Adam. What life's going to be like, Eve. This is what your sinful desires are going to bring on. You can't blame God for it. 
He's only bringing on the consequences which sin brings. Lastly, God turns to the man, Genesis 3, 17-19. And while the curse upon Adam is directed to Adam, it extends to all his descendants. The penalties of evil which shall afflict Adam are threefold. First, he's exposed to environmental stress. The ground is cursed. He must now struggle to survive. Now see, we don't know anything else. That's all we've ever known to do. If a man won't work, he shouldn't be permitted to eat. Well, a man's got to work. Adam was given a job in caring for the garden. But everything that was in that garden was for Adam's benefit. He didn't have a thing going against him. Just go and eat of all the trees here, whatever he wanted. Now then, all of Adam's environment is not going to be in that paradise. It's going to be outside the garden, and it's going to be in an environment in which the elements are going to work against him. Thorns and thistles will hinder his efforts. And this struggle will continue throughout human existence as long as Adam's offspring are living in mortal bodies. There will be a struggle to exist. Brother Walter, think of it. In the eternal state, that struggle will be no longer there. We will experience something we've never known. Secondly, Adam will encounter what we call occupational stress. In the sweat of his face, he will have to earn his livelihood. Before his sin, his work was enjoyable. Now it will become frustrating and wearisome. So that even the best of jobs will have its setbacks and its disappointments. I don't care how good a job you have, you're going to get frustrated with it at one time or another, and it's going to bring disappointment. Thirdly, there will be mortal stress which lies ahead of him. Adam now has an appointment with death, and each one of you do as well. The point is unto man wants to die. Adam will return to the dust from whence he came. And no matter how he tries to blot the reality of this out of his conscience, every funeral home and every hearse And every funeral possession will remind him of this reality, death is coming. He may try to blot it out by pleasure and sin and drugs and alcohol and travel and all kinds of things, but he cannot get it out of his conscience, death is coming. Now, Adam's got to live with that. That's something he didn't have prior to the fall. Now then, he has to face the fact he is a mortal being who is going to die. So these five sources of stress that I've listed, demonic stress, social stress, environmental stress, moral stress, uh, occupational stress, They tell us three things about what to expect in living in a fallen world of sin and its consequences. 
First, what's it like to live in a fallen world now? Life in this world is filled with pain, sorrow, and suffering. Adam, that's what you're going to have to expect. Now, I don't care how many courses you take in positive thinking and how much of a Christian science approach you take, this is the reality of life, Adam. You're going to have pain, sorrow, and suffering. Secondly, life in this present evil world grows continually worse. As you grow older, there will come a time, according to Ecclesiastes, and in the experience of all men, in which they no longer enjoy living in a human body. The pain and the depression and the grief and the despair with the aging process causes a person to remember the days of their youth and remember the Creator when they were young. It grows worse as we grow older. Said, my, this is a morbid message. I'm not coming back next Sunday. I'll go down the road and find a positive message. Just go to nearly any church you go to and you'll find one. I can, I can assure you of that. Because men don't want to face the reality of living in a fallen world. They want a paradise in Eden or a new heaven and new earth now. And this is not paradise, folks. The third consequence of Adam's fall is that life in this present world ends in death. I say again, Brother Walter, you're not getting out of this thing alive. Life in this world is filled with pain, sorrow, and sufferings. Life in this world grows continually worse, and life in this present world will end in your death. Well, why then did God choose suffering, ending in death, as the form of punishment for human sin? Couldn't He have have chosen many other forms of punishment? Why did He choose this one form? Because it was meant to remind us that we are not gods. We are not our own authority. We are under the authority of something higher than us, God. This form of punishment is designed to limit and humble our pride and our arrogance. And God, in infinite wisdom, may now choose to execute this sentence of suffering and death upon any creature, at any time, in any way, and in any degree. Hmm? Brother Jim, God doesn't owe everybody a fair shake. Hmm? Life is not fair in the way we humans want fairness defined. God can bring suffering in the life of an infant in the womb. And He can let another person live 60 or 70 years with very little suffering. That's God's prerogative. 
All human beings are under the sentence of death, and God has the right in His infinite wisdom to screen that process to where that He can execute that sentence upon any creature at any time and in any way. Don't compare what's happening in your life with something that's happening in another person's life and say God isn't fair. I'm glad God is merciful. If I got what was fair, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be suffering the wrath of God in hell. Death happens to me because I'm a sinful creature, deserving of the wrath of God because of the exceeding sinfulness of my sin. And folks, the mystery is not why do bad things happen to good people. The mystery is how can good things happen to bad people? The mystery is not how much I am suffering in life. The mystery is... ...in kindness God had showed me in this life. He didn't know me this. And to prove it, he immediately judged the angels that fell. Immediate judgment upon them. I tell you, I have been blessed in a way that I can't even begin to describe today. And I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me. A sinner, condemned, unclean. We don't sing that song much anymore, do we? We don't want to hear that we are exceedingly sinful. And that if anything good happens to us, it's not because God owed it to us, but that He has shown grace and mercy in our lives. The third side of our frame we've called the wrath of God. You'll look at that on your, on your chart. Your left-hand side, the creature's sin. Secondly, the character of God. Thirdly, God's curse or His wrath upon sin. Folks, you can't remove that ingredient from the understanding of human suffering and come up with an answer. Now let's move to God's solution for suffering. The last side of the frame of our puzzle, we devoted to God's solution for suffering through the redemptive suffering of His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the curse of suffering is lifted through the means of the cross of suffering. Isn't that a mystery? We say we fight fire with what? How did God fight suffering with suffering? His solution. He didn't stay out of this situation and let me experience something that he knew nothing about. He became a man. 
and was tested in all points like I was, yet without any sin. And He suffered. And thus He can be touched with the feelings of my finiteness, my limitations. The main point in Genesis 3 is that God has ordained suffering as the consequences of human sin. It's the result of His curse. It's ongoing. It's unrelenting. But it is not something outside of His dominion or His ability to control. But there's something else in Genesis 3, verse 15. There it should be noted that suffering is not strictly limited to punitive and destructive purposes. It's also, Brother Jim, redemptive and constructive. This verse contains the first announcement of the gospel of a coming Redeemer who would restore man to a place of confirmed sinlessness in which that man would delight in submitting his finite will to the infinite will of his Creator God and never again choose anything but what his God would have him to choose. That's something that none of you or myself know anything about. Because we're torn. We have a heart that's divided. Now, while the curse condemned man to death, it would turn out that death would become the most redemptive act of all. The death of the ultimate human being, Jesus Christ. By taking the curse upon Himself, God would transform the curse into redemption, which would include not only the paying of our sin debt, bringing about our justification before God, but He would also cause our own personal suffering to work out, Brother Asa, for our good in restoring us to the moral image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while suffering is part of the curse that results from sin, it is also part of the solution for sinning. The infinite Creator in the person of the Son acquired the nature of a finite creature. For a little time, He was ranked lower than the angels that He might suffer death for mankind. He became the second Adam in order to undo the damage done by the first Adam. In order to restore obedience to the finite creatures of Adam's race, Jesus, in His humanity, had to submit His will as a finite creature to the will of His heavenly Father as Creator. This is expressed in Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience through the things which He, what? Suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that finish it. Obey Him. Get it? 
The word obedience means to submit one's authority to that of a higher authority. Now listen and read that text in that light. Though he were the Son, yet he learned to submit his will to that of a higher will. And he was confirmed in a state of perfection. And he learned that through the things which he was exposed to as a human being living in a world of suffering. Now, folks, that's the path you're on. If you're going to bear His moral image, God has ordained suffering as the instrument not to destroy you, but to reconstruct your life to where that you will always choose that which is pleasing unto Him. He's burning the dross out of us, I hear first. And one day when He's complete, we're going to be presented spotless, faultless before the throne of Almighty God to where we will bear a moral righteousness and likeness to that of none other than the second Adam himself. So it's through our understandings of the sufferings of Jesus that we are now enabled to understand the purpose and design of our own sufferings. If Jesus learned to submit to authority from what He suffered before He entered into glory, then we as His people must also learn to submit to authority by our sufferings before we enter into the glorious phase of His kingdom. Thank God that our lifelong trials are humbling us for an eternal state of delightful obedience to our God. Thanks be to God who gives us the what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What will it be like to be able to delight in always doing what God pleases for us to do. What will that be like? Without a show of hands, how many of you really want to please God today? You're sincere about this matter. You want to please God. How many of you struggle with the fact that you don't? One day that struggle will be gone. And it will be worth it all when we see Christ. Life's trials seem so small when we see Him. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. That's the beatific vision that Jonathan Edwards spoke of. What is it that's going to keep us from never delighting in the pleasures of sin ever again. Now listen, it may shock some of you, it's not our death. You say, well, I thought people that were Christians stopped sinning when they died. That's, that's, it, that's true. But there are people who die as non-Christians who don't stop sinning. So it's not death that stops us from sinning. The wicked in hell are still defying God. But it's something that happens at the point of death where the creature of God who has been redeemed and regenerated 
sees the one who was the greatest, who became the least, and who's now elevated to greatness because humility and servitude is what God sees as greatness. When we see Him, we'll say, never again will I want greatness on my own makeup. Seeing the Lord face to face, it will be worth it all. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the four outward sides of the frame of our puzzle are now in place. And these parts must all be constantly reaffirmed in order for the remaining biblical data to harmonize and to make sense. Look at your chart again as we close for today. The creature's sin. The Creator's character. The curse on sin. The wrath of God. And God's solution for sin. Now prepare us to understand the rest of God's revelation on the meaning of human suffering. Next week we'll move into the last part of the review. And then the Lord willing, we're going to get into some, I believe, some new material for many of us. In seeing the connection between what we are called upon to suffer here in this life and the connection of what we're going to be doing in the world to come, where we're going to be, what role of service we're going to be made partakers of. Asa, who does the Bible reveal suffered the most out of Adam's race? Jesus Christ Himself. We all agree with that? Who has been exalted to the highest place of honor in the service of the kingdom? Jesus is. We're going to see that there's a connection between what He did in this life, He was rewarded in the world to come. And we're going to have to struggle, Brother Asa, in this matter of how do we teach salvation by grace, unmerited favor, and rewards in the life to come. But we've got a task ahead of us because that has not been an easy task for the theologians throughout church history to try to handle. So I hope that this has stirred up our thinking where we have been and where we're going to be going to. So that is, it is my schedule now. I believe I have the next three Sundays, which is a rare occurrence since I've been out. So we'll be being able to get a flow going here and hopefully we'll be able to get this thing completed here in a few weeks. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have the opportunity to study Your Word, have Your Spirit teach us the great truths that are contained herein. Oh, sanctify our mortal faculties, our thinking processes, and conform them to the reality of the unseen world. Wean us from seeing this present world of reality and prepare us for that unseen world of spiritual reality which lies ahead. Bless us in heavenly places in Christ this day. Thank you for this group of people, their faithfulness, 
to assemble here and to carry out your work and to worship and honor you on this your Lord's day. Help us not only to do that here in this assembly, but in the daily lives that comes ahead this week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. May whatever unfolds in our life, may we say, may your name be praised and Jesus receive the preeminence. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.